as we are journeying together through Mark, we're coming up to the climax. The story is building. Jesus is in Jerusalem during that final week that we call Holy Week. And in today's passage, we continue to listen in on these confrontations that Jesus has with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Now, you have to remember on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into town triumphantly on the, the, on the foal of a donkey, uh, in fulfillment of Messianic prophecy, and by doing so, he was claiming to be king of the Jews. He then went into the temple and ransacked it and chased out all the money changers and the, the people selling animals as if he were the chief priest cleaning the temple. And then he spoke this prophetic word as if he himself could speak for God. And this annoyed and alarmed the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priestly elders and the scribes. And so they began to challenge Jesus, to try to entrap him in his own words. They hoped to either discredit him in the eyes of the people or to catch him in some sort of a legal crime that they could take all the way to Rome and have Rome deal with this problem. Well, last week we looked at the first of these two confrontations where Jesus clarified both the nature and the source of his authority. That God is, is in charge of heaven and earth. He's in charge of every realm of our, of our relationships and our lives. And Jesus did this in a way that amazed and astonished and ashamed his accusers. So that the scripture says they left him and went away. Because they were utterly amazed. Now Jesus is next confronted by the most elite and liberal of the Jewish religious class. We call them the Sadducees. They were the priestly class. They came from some of the oldest, wealthiest families in Jerusalem. We might think of them as the religious aristocracy. And they were very theologically liberal. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. They completely discounted the rest. They denied the existence of a human soul. They denied the doctrines of, of an afterlife and of resurrection and of the final judgment. They didn't believe in any of that. They considered themselves far too sophisticated and intelligent to believe in that kind of superstition. And they certainly thought they could easily trip up this nobody rabbi from Nazareth. I mean, what good comes from Nazareth? But Jesus outsmarted them all. He showed that their sophistication was just sophistry. And their cleverness was really cluelessness. So let's look at this passage today. Mark chapter 12. Let's read verses 18 through 27. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying, left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, none of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. For when they raise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God 
of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. That's a pretty harsh comeback from Jesus to these Sadducees. And that's why they're sad, you see. Sorry, that was, that was bad. That was bad. Please forgive me. That was bad. Jesus called them ignorant. They were ignorant both of the truth of Scripture and of the power of God. And it was that claim of ignorance about Scripture that was especially egregious to them, almost egregious as that joke. Uh, The Sadducees prided themselves on their knowledge of at least the first five books of the Bible. But through this encounter and the next one we're going to look at, Jesus continued to take his opponent's arguments and use them to teach a deeper spiritual truth. And in today's passage, Jesus outlines for us four realities of the resurrection life. Now, what is the resurrection life? What do I mean by that? And how can you live a resurrection life Before you've died. I mean, isn't the resurrection something that happens later after we've died? Well, remember the Sadducees' question. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Now, behind that question are two things we have to understand. One is the assumption from the Sadducees that polygamy is a sin. That the the, the Torah, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, teaches, uh, chapter 1 and 2 teaches that We are made male and female, and and God made man and woman to be together and to come together in marriage and a lifelong exclusive partnership of love and devotion that the two become one flesh, and therefore polygamy is a sin. Now, we see, obviously, in the Old Testament, people practiced polygamy, but it was always in violation of God's intent and of God's law. So that's the first assumption. But the second thing we have to remember is the Sadducees don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe there's going to be a resurrection. So really this question is being offered as a ridicule. They're actually ridiculing the very notion of resurrection because in this hypothetical situation, if there's a resurrection, then this woman must be practicing polygamy because she'll be married to seven men. This was the trap they thought they laid for Jesus. Either he's going to deny the Torah and support polygamy or he's going to deny the resurrection. That's where they thought they had him. But as Jesus does, he demolishes their trap and he teaches about something beyond marriage, even beyond just the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. He affirms that. He affirms the afterlife. He affirms the raising of the saints when he returns. But Jesus says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now that is not only true, in terms of our physical life at the end of time, that is true of our spiritual life today. Remember what Paul wrote about in our New Testament reading this morning. He said that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Every human being, because of our inherited sin nature passed down from Adam and Eve, we are all born spiritually dead. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. We are living by the world's ways. We are practicing evil under the rule of the power of Satan. And Paul goes on to say in verse 3 that we are even living according to our fleshly desires. We're carrying out the inclinations of our flesh, our thoughts, We are by nature 
our nature, children of wrath, or enemies of God. But thank God He is rich in His mercy and His great love toward us. Amen? Amen. And He provided by His grace a way for us to be saved through Jesus' atoning work on the cross. The dead can be made alive in Christ. The enemies of God can become His children. Rather than living disobediently in the flesh, according to worldly ways, we can now display the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us. And we can complete the good works that He has already prepared for us to do. Listen to the way Paul goes on to describe this new life in Jesus in verses 4 through 6. He says that God who is rich in mercy because of His great love that He had for us made us alive. Now notice the past tense. He made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Again, past tense. He's not talking about the future when Christ returns. He talks about that a lot you know, in other places. But right here, he's talking as if we've already been raised from the dead. As if we've already been seated with Christ in the heavens. The, what Paul is telling us here is we don't have to wait until we die to enjoy the eternal abundant life that Jesus died to provide for us. If you have confessed your sins, if you've trusted in Christ Jesus for salvation... You have already been made alive with Christ. You've already been raised up and seated with Him in the heavens. Eternal resurrection life doesn't begin when you die. It doesn't just wait for Christ's return when your body will be raised. It begins at the moment of your salvation. You enter into this resurrection life. Yes, it will be consummated and completed when Jesus returns, but we can live in the power of Jesus' resurrection today. And Jesus states that truth by refuting this trap that the Sadducees have laid for Him. The truth of the power of a new beginning. God has the power to give us a new beginning. Warren Wiersbe wrote this. He said, Resurrection is not the restoration of life as we know it. It is the entrance into a new life that is different. Basically, the very premise of the Sadducees' question missed the point. When we die and find ourselves in the presence of God, when Jesus returns at the end of time, He will make all things new. We will live forever in a new kind of life, in new kind of bodies, on a new earth. The Sadducees failed to understand this. They didn't understand God's power in raising the dead. It's not just reanimating our old bodies, it's creating something new. Jesus said, behold, I will make all things new. And so their question is irrelevant because marriage and the purpose of marriage, such as reproduction, aren't necessary in heaven. Marriage is an earthly relationship that's meant to accomplish certain things, such as bringing stability to human society, facilitating healthy relationships and and fostering human flourishing. It's there to provide protection for women, stability for children, and as Paul tells us, it points forward to the gospel. Jesus is in the church like a, a husband and his bride. Those things will no longer be necessary in the resurrection. Now, people then start to wonder, well, what does that mean for my family? Will I not be with my family in heaven? 
Will there not be that bond of love between me and, and my spouse? Yes, there will. Jesus isn't negating our family relationships. Rather, Jesus is actually expanding them. In his commentary on Mark, Grant Osborne explains it this way, We will not need to marry because we will know our current spouses and everyone else infinitely better than we know them now. That's what Jesus means when he says we'll be like the angels in heaven. People misunderstand that and think that when you die you become an angel. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he's saying like the angels in heaven, we won't have any need to be married and to bear children to replenish the race. There, there is no more be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. That's already been done. That's no longer needed in the new heaven and the new earth. And we'll also be like the angels in that we will know each other as we are known. When we read in the Bible, we discover that angels have, have personalities. They have identities. They even have names. We know the names of, of two of them, uh, Gabriel and Michael, are mentioned by name in the Bible. We will know each other in heaven. Think about on the Mount of Transfiguration. Who appeared to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. And they appeared as Moses and Elijah. They knew each other as that. Jesus knew them. They knew Jesus. Somehow even Peter, James, and John knew this was Moses and Elijah. In heaven we will recognize our loved ones. We will know and love and be together with them forever. But how does this apply to living in the resurrection life here and now. That's, that's someday when Christ returns. What about today? Well, though we have yet to experience the transformation of our physical bodies to be like Jesus' eternal body, we should be experiencing every day the transformation of our relationships. Jesus talking about marriage in heaven, but what about our marriage here and now? How does following Jesus impact your marriage? How does being a follower of Jesus make you a better husband or wife? What about your, as parents? How does Christ influence your parenting? Are we patient? Are we kind and gentle with others? Are we willing to bear one another and forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us? What difference is Jesus making today in our relationships? Because just as our bodies will someday be like Jesus' body, daily our hearts should become more like Jesus. The way we talk and think and act should be more like Jesus. We should be bearing the fruit of His Spirit and displaying the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us every day. A good illustration of this power of a new beginning is a story that's told about uh, George Whitfield. George Whitfield was one of those, those stalwart, great preachers of the Great Awakening in the 18th century. And he was there preaching on John 3 as he had done many times. But this time out there in the audience was a man who had come that day with his pockets full of rocks with the intent of throwing them at George Whitfield at the end of the service. But at the end of the service, this man came up to the preacher and he started to empty the rocks out of his pockets. And he said, I came to hear you with my pockets full of stones to break your head, but your sermon got the better of me and broke my heart. God's grace melted this man's heart of stone. He emptied the rocks before God and he gave himself to Jesus. And he was forever changed by the power of the resurrection. The power of a new beginning. What about you? 
What about you? Do you have a hard heart this morning? Are you still dead in your trespasses and sins? What have you come this morning with your pockets full of? I hope it's not rocks to throw at me. (laughs) But what are your pockets full of? Jesus wants to give you a new beginning. Jesus wants to take you from death to life, from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of the Son. Will you this morning let Jesus give you a fresh start, a clean slate? Will you let Him transform you from the inside out? The power of a new beginning. That's the first reality of the resurrection life. But Jesus goes on to also accuse the Sadducees of being ignorant of the truth of God. The truth of God's Word is essential to us as believers in Jesus Christ, as people who have been made alive with Christ. Now, as I said, the Sadducees had disregarded all but the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the only thing they thought of as Scripture. But even Moses taught about the reality of life after death. In fact, Jesus goes to Exodus to make His point. There at the burning bush, when God calls Moses, when God reveals His covenant name, Yahweh, I Am, He says, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Not I was the God. I am the God. He's not the great I was. He's the great I am. In God's presence, we are We only are, we live, we exist in His presence. There's no depth in His presence. Now, how could the Sadducees be so wrong about the reality of our soul and the afterlife and the resurrection? How how could they miss something as obvious as God's covenant name? I am. They're not just wrong about some secondary doctrine here. They're wrong about the very nature of God, the very essence of reality. Well, listen, this is nothing new. This has been happening since Adam and Eve believed Satan's lies in the Garden of Eden. Remember what Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden. He only changed one little word of what God said. God said, if you eat the fruit of this tree, you will certainly die. And Satan said, you certainly will not die. He changed one word and changed what God said. And Adam and Eve began to doubt the goodness and the faithfulness and the truthfulness and the love of God. And so they rebelled, they sinned and fell, and brought the curse upon all of creation. Sin entered the world. And guess what? They certainly did die. Satan is a liar. He always and only tells lies. Jesus called him the father of lies. Now listen, the same thing is happening today. Too many so-called churches and Christians are just as ignorant of the truth of God's Word. And like the Sadducees, they treat the Bible like a buffet line. And they pick and choose what they like and what they don't like. They take the parts that they like. People love, to people, did they love the parts of the Bible? Talk about that God is love, that we shouldn't judge people, that we should take care of the orphans and the widows and our neighbors and the immigrants. They love that part, but they hate and leave behind anything about God's holiness. His wrath against sin. The reality of a final judgment and of hell. They hate that. They they, they don't want to talk about sin or confession or repentance or holy living. They leave that part behind. And so they miss the very truth about who God is. About His will and His way and the way that He's working in our world 
They're ignorant of the realities of personal sin and cosmic evil, and so they deny themselves the opportunity to experience forgiveness and mercy and grace. Because if there's no sin, then there's no need for a Savior. If there's no need to confess and repent, there's no need for grace and mercy. And they miss out. Our church's number one core value is that we will be biblically faithful, which means we will proclaim God's Word with integrity, authority, and clarity. That's because the Bible is the divinely inspired Word of God. God worked through human authors to communicate His Word to us. The Scriptures are God-breathed. And since God is perfect in truth and in holiness... Without making any mistakes, therefore His Word is pure and true and holy without any mixture of error. Listen, God's Word is inspired. It is without mistake. It is inerrant, infallible. It will never fail you. It will never let you down. And God not only inspired its writing, but He has protected and guided it through the generations to come down to us today. And listen, I'll tell you this. The Bible as we have it today is the most attested ancient document in all the world. There are more textual pieces of evidence going back within just even a hundred years of the writing, within a hundred years of the writing of the Gospel of Mark, for example. We have textual evidence of the Bible's trustworthiness, its reliability. We have far more evidence about that than we do that Homer actually wrote the Odyssey or even Shakespeare wrote his plays. The Bible is trustworthy and true. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. The Bible is sufficient. It is powerful. It is all we need for life and for faith. It teaches us what is true. It rebukes us of the sin in our lives. It corrects us when we go astray. And it trains us in how to do what is right. And since that's true, not if, But since, since the Bible is the divinely inspired Word of God and it truly conveys to us God's voice and God's mind, then shouldn't this book shape and inform every aspect of our lives? Shouldn't it guide us in every decision that we make, inform our thoughts and permeate our speech? I believe it should. And listen, the only way that we can avoid straying from the truth of God's Word, the only way we can avoid from becoming ignorant of God's power, the only way we can avoid falling into the the, the thinking and the ways of this world is to saturate ourselves with the Word of God. We need to inhabit it, be immersed in it. As the psalmist wrote, it must be the light to guide our feet and it must be hidden in our heart to keep us from falling into temptation. If we want to know and experience the power of a new beginning, we must believe and live by the truth of God's Word. And Paul connects both of those in Romans 1.16. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The Sadducees were ignorant of the power of God because they didn't know the Word of God. What about you? Do you know God's Word? Do you believe God's Word? Are you in it? Do you seek to live it? Now, the next interaction that we move on to is the only member 
of all these religious institutions that actually came to Jesus with any sincerity in him. And, and I say that he, I think he was at least somewhat sincere based on Jesus' response to him, which we'll see in a minute. Even if he had been put up to this by the Sanhedrin, I think that there was something in him that was intrigued by Jesus. He truly listened to what Jesus had to say. And through this encounter, Jesus reveals the twofold purpose for the resurrection life. We've kind of looked at the source of it, the power of a new beginning and the truth of God. But what does this resurrection life impact us? How does it lead us to live our lives? Well, the first thing is we love God with all our being. That's the first thing that the resurrection life enables us to do, to love God with all of our being. Let's look at Mark 12, verses 28 through 34. One of the scribes approached. Now, a scribe was a, a position. It was a, both a skill and a position. You could, you could be elevated up to a scribe. Scribes were highly respected and valued. They were very educated. They knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. They were responsible for copying uh, the Old Testament very faithfully and accurately. It was a big deal. If they made one little mistake, they had to destroy the whole page. Okay, they, 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 were, they were charged with passing on the Word of God flawlessly. So the scribe approached when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well. So he's kind of listening in on this exchange he had with the Sadducees. He asked him, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. And then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. Now, his question of Jesus was a typical question you would ask a rabbi. In the Old Testament law, there were 613 commands. 365 negative, 248 positive. And so, this was a, a common debate question of the day. Which of all of those was the most important? Which was the greatest commandment? People you know, debated that all the time in that day. And in fact, rabbis would often kind of characterize their ministry by which command they said they thought was the most important. So this was a natural question for him to ask Jesus. And Jesus answered by pointing to the Shema. That's our Old Testament reading this morning in Deuteronomy 6. He pointed to the Shema as the source of the greatest command. That because the Lord is one, we should love God with all of our being, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then once again, Jesus takes the conversation a step deeper by offering a second greatest commandment, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Jesus was saying that love is the most important thing in life. Now, Paul later picks up on this by describing love as the fulfillment of the law. Look what Paul says in Romans 13. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not uh, commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. So both Jesus and Paul interpret the Old Testament law in, in light of love. 
in light of this resurrection life that we find in Jesus Christ. They're telling us that being holy and righteous is not about rules. It's about relationships. I see, Judaism in Jesus' day, as a system, it, it had elevated rule following far above relationships, either our relationship with God or our relationship with others. They didn't emphasize that at all. They were all about keeping the rules. Religion. Religion is cold and lifeless because all it's about is following rules and keeping rituals and traditions. But Christianity is about growing in a love relationship with God every day. It's all about relationships. Now, what does it mean for us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, to love God means that we devote ourselves to God. We give ourselves to God, our whole being. We go all the way in, 100%. We completely surrender to Him. And we do it with all of our heart, all of our feelings and understandings, the essence of who we are. We surrender to Him our soul, meaning our entire life, our work life, our family life, our home life. We surrender our entire soul to Him. We contemplate God with our mind. We think about Him. We think His thoughts after Him. We immerse ourselves in the truth of His Word so that He renews our mind and we serve Him with all of our strength, with all of our energy and our time and our resources and our abilities and skills. And why would we do this? Because we love Him. And why do we love Him? Because He first loved us. Listen to what 1 John 4, 18 and 19 says, There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear. Because fear involves punishment. So we don't do these things because we're afraid God's going to punish us if we don't. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We do it. We love. Because He first loved us. We wouldn't be capable of loving God if He had not first loved us. We love God with all of our being, with everything we have, with everything we are, in response to His immeasurable, unmerited love for us. And when we have a loving relationship with the Holy God, it must result in us having loving relationships with other people. And so the resurrection life doesn't just empower us to love God, it empowers us to love people as ourselves. Now, this is part of our purpose statement as a church. That we are a church that wants to love God, love people, and make disciples. Loving God and loving people are essential. Now, see, here Jesus turns from the Shema in Deuteronomy to the law in Leviticus 19.18, where it says, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, it's significant that he says, love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. Because it's easy for us to convince ourselves and other people that we're good with God. Right? I mean, we can go to church, we can give our tithes and offerings, we can be a deacon or serve on a committee or teach a Sunday school class, we can, we can say all the right things, we can even do some of the right things and have a cold and lifeless walk with God. It's easy to fool ourselves and others. But there's no fooling anyone on whether you really love other people. That's visible for all the world to see. Which is why John goes on to say in 1 John 4, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. 
Loving God is not about going through the motions of religiousness. It's not about the occasional, you know, a charitable act. It's about recognizing the image of God in other people. Seeing them through the eyes of Jesus as people God loves. And especially, we should love other believers because we have the same Father. The same Spirit dwells within us. We're saved by the same Savior. We're members of the same body. We should love each other as family. How could I love God without loving another enough to bear their burden, forgive their failings and meet their needs? How could I love God without loving the lost people around me? He loved them enough to die on the cross for them. Do we love them enough to tell them the good news? We can't love God if we're not loving other people. And there's a reason why that love your neighbor as yourself, if you noticed in Leviticus 19.18, is in the context of don't bear a grudge and don't seek revenge. We have to forgive one another and bear with one another and be patient with one another because you know what else we all have in common? Sin. We're all broken. We all need God's grace every single day. Now, unlike the other encounters, this man didn't leave Jesus just amazed or angry, or ashamed. He commended Jesus. He agreed with Jesus' assessment about the greatest commands. He echoed what the Old Testament prophets said, that those things, loving God and others, is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. He was correct. And so Jesus gave His assessment of the scribe and said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now what does that mean? It means that He was facing the truth of God's Word with a humble, honest heart. He was listening to Jesus. He was letting what He was saying come into His heart. He was open to the power of God to forever transform His life. He lacked one thing, and that was to act on it. To step out in faith and commit Himself to following Jesus. Now, we don't know whether He ever did that or not. Maybe He did. But you can know today where you stand with God. You can know right now. Are you far from His kingdom or are you near? Where do you stand with God? Maybe you believe all the right things in your head, but you've never let them penetrate to your heart. You've never turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus. I implore you today, don't leave here merely close to the kingdom of God. Don't leave here unless you know you are in the kingdom of God. Have you been made alive with Christ? Have you been forgiven of your trespasses and sins? Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Has He given you that experience of the power of a new beginning? If you have any question or doubt about that, I pray you won't leave this room today till you come this morning and trust your heart and life to Jesus Christ and say, I want to pass over from death to life. I want Jesus to live in my heart and wipe away my sins. I need that new beginning today, David. Would you come this morning and trust in Jesus Christ? Discover the power of a new beginning and the truth of God's Word in you. Those of us that are believers, we should ask ourselves this morning, what's my attitude towards God's Word? Do I believe it? Do I spend enough time in it? Am I living about it? Am I letting it penetrate my heart? Do I love God with all of my being? Or am I holding some of myself back for myself? Or have I surrendered to Him my all? Maybe there's an area in your life that you've not fully given over to Jesus. You need to do that today. You need to come and kneel at this altar and surrender your all to Him. 
you letting Him renew your mind by the truth of His Word? Are you serving God with all of your strength? Or are you just kind of giving Him the leftovers? There's a little mediocre offering of your time here and there when it's convenient. Listen, if you're not devoted to God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with all of your being, if there's a relationship that's broken in your life right now, and you're holding a grudge and not forgiving, you need to be at this altar this morning. Because you can't experience the true power of the resurrected life if you're not loving God with all of your being and loving your neighbor as yourself. And I think that really means every single one of us have some serious soul-searching to do this morning. So would you stand and pray with me? Father, I pray if there's anyone listening to this today, here or on the radio or online, that doesn't know for certain where they stand with you. Maybe they think they're close. Maybe they'd say, well, I hope I'll get into heaven. I'm a good person. I go to church. They're close to the kingdom, but they're not in it. I pray, Father, they would come this morning and surrender themselves to You and experience Your unmerited favor, Your grace, Your mercy, Your love to transform their lives. I pray, God, that they would come today and enter into that resurrection life. Father, maybe You're calling some here to unite with this church or to publicly profess their previous faith in Jesus. They've already come to You, but they've never been baptized. I pray that they would be obedient to Your Spirit's leading and come today. Father, for those of us that do know You and we are striving to live for You, God, we make mistakes every single day. We need Your mercy, which is new every single morning. We are so grateful for Your faithfulness. But Father, I pray if there's anybody that needs to come with a specific conviction You've placed on their heart, that they would put aside their pride, that they would come to this altar and do business with You. That we would leave here all that You deserve from us and leave this place wholly committed to you, heart, soul, mind, and strength. May we respond obediently as your Spirit leads us today. In Jesus' holy name we pray.